Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and today we have an exciting book for you to think about. It's called The Emotions of God. And uh, when I first caught the title, as I've shared on the podcast many times, Baker has been very kind, as has InterVarsity, as has Crossway, to give us great authors to talk to. When a man or woman spends two, three, four years with an idea and putting it into print and publishing it, that's no small accomplishment. And sometimes these books go beyond just the title. So I did not know David Lamb, author of God Behaving Badly, which we might talk about, albeit briefly. He is the Alan McRae Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Faculty at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia. You got some smoke up there today? Oh, we do, although it's a little better than it was yesterday. Um, but yeah, yesterday was really bad. bad. That's crazy. Yeah, you work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, where my great friend Michael Moriarty, you ever bump uh, elbows with Mike Moriarty, Dr. Moriarty? He's in the graduate studies program. Uh, no, I don't think I know him. Brilliant man. But he's also taught extensively in various cross-cultural contexts. He's got the book, God Behaving Badly, Prostitutes and Polygamists, First and Second Kings, and the Story of God Bible Commentary Series, and a forthcoming book on Chronicles we were just chatting about, The Emotions of God. Okay, before we start talking about your book, I have said for years, David, that every emotion a human has can be found in the Psalter. Lament, petition, anger, depression, joy, happiness, sadness, you name it. So we know the Bible is attuned to the anthropomorphic side, that men and women have emotions and feelings and get hurt, et cetera. But you've turned this on its head and said, wait, let's talk about God's emotions. So first of all, the detractor is going to say, David, God doesn't have emotions. He's God. Yes. And I understand that. And again, I want to be gracious to people that I don't... Oh, you don't have to be gracious. You can just be yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, we're, humans are created in the image of God, and we've certainly got emotions. And it's pretty clear the God of the Bible, the God in my Bible is a very emotional God. It talks about God having a lot of different emotions, a quite array of emotions, not all the emotions that humans have. We don't see him fearful. We don't see him surprised. We don't see him embarrassed. But a lot of these other emotions I talk about in the book, the Bible often attributes to God. And although some people will think, well, gosh, that's just, they're using these anthropomorphisms. That's not actually the way right. God feels. That's not what my Bible says, and I think that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So I understand feeling uncomfortable with it, but I've got to take the Bible seriously. Can we differentiate, uh, and this might be a bridge too far, between a Trinitarian understanding, God the Father, of course, but God the Son being fully God, fully man, in a sense that we would look to Christ just for our own you know, human brain concept that Jesus, of course, had emotion. This is going to quickly move into territories that I normally just delegate to the systematic theologians. I'm a Bible guy. Systematic theologians like to quote other systematic theologians and, and dip into the Bible occasionally. For me, I'm a Bible guy, so I'm, I'm really very focused on the Bible. In, and I'll that dip. likes to dip into theology occasionally? <laughs> I like to dip into I'm theology sorry. occasionally. That was too easy. I'm, I, yeah, yeah, no. So I think... The ways that humans experience emotions differently than God. God is consistently slow to anger. <laughs> Many of us struggle 
with being quick to anger, right? That's just that's okay. just an example. God's jealousy is always pure and appropriate, whereas a lot of us struggle with unhealthy forms of jealousy. So there's going to be a lot of ways it's going to look different for God than it does for humans. But again, according to the Bible, God is shockingly described as emotional in many contexts, and there's a lot we could say about that. Typically, when we say God is a jealous God or angry, we put it in this righteous, indignatious category, or I don't think it's wrong, we define jealousy a little differently than human jealousy, because there's a sense where you could say jealousy is a good thing, right? Yes. Yes. I'm not a psychologist or a counselor, but I I did a little bit of reading on this, and it was interesting to find that a bunch of professional psychiatrists, psychologists will differentiate different types of jealousy, healthy jealousy, unhealthy jealousy. And I think the Bible does the exact same thing. Paul tells the Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He wants the Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians 11, he wants them to be exclusively focused on God. No fooling around with those idols that they may be tempted to worship. And God likewise wants us And I think it's totally appropriate to be exclusively focused on him, to worship him, to only look to him as our source of security and the thing that we worship. And so when we mess around with other gods, with other idols, you know, and we could talk about the idols of our day, God gets jealous. And he tells us that in Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 and other places as well. And one of the things that people that have thought more about this than I do say, if you can express and just state that you are jealous, that usually is a sign that what you're experiencing is a more of a healthy form of jealousy. Whereas jealousy in a relationship that can lead to dangerous things, abuse, etc., it's usually not able to be expressed or is not expressed. Whereas God is clear about it, he owns it, um, he explains it, and there's always a reason for it. You mentioned earlier that, that uh, anger is an emotion, and again, that's almost like a theological subset within psychology is that anger and in some respects fear aren't really legitimate emotions. They're secondary, meaning there's something that's exposed me. There's something I'm caught in. And so if I'm angry, I push you away. People who are skilled at anger are very effective at pushing others away. They're caught so they get angry in response or fear. Fear can be kind of a funny emotion. Are we really afraid or is that keeping something at bay? Am I making sense with that? And then help me think no, through I, that. If, no, I, okay. think, I think it's true. I meet with um, a woman, Christine, who's a spiritual director. And in our pilgrimage together, I will talk about being angry. And she will often tell me, well, anger is a, a secondary emotion. And there's usually something behind it. I totally agree with that. But again, the problem with all of these emotions is it's hard to kind of nail them down. It's hard to fully kind of understand and figure out what is behind them. Often we don't feel a simple one binary emotion. Okay, now I'm feeling anger. Now I'm feeling frustrated. And, And we might want to differentiate them or try to distill them. But in reality, we often have this array of emotions that we're feeling at any given point in time. And I think anger is complex. In scripture, it's often connected with hatred and jealousy. So there's kind of a distinct aspect to it. But yes, it is complex. Some people would say secondary. And I don't fully understand all of that. Although I do know there are times where it does seem like 
I am feeling angry. And I think scripture right. makes it clear that that is how God feels in certain situations. Again, slow to anger, but sometimes uh, anger is really kind of the key thing that he's experienced. So when God is angry, what does that look like? What does the scripture tell us when God is angry? I talk about this because I have a chapter on anger in um, my book, um, God Behaving Badly, is the God of the Old Testament, angry, sexist, and racist. But I like to look at the book at Exodus. Exodus tells us the very first time that scripture records God getting angry. And that's in chapter four of Exodus when God gets angry at Moses. Moses. <laughs> if mm-hmm. you're familiar with the story of Moses' call, Moses is rather hesitant. <laughs> he offers a series of ejections. He doesn't want to go back and deliver the, um, his, his family from the Egyptian oppression. And God's really patient with him initially, but then God gets angry eventually. For me, that's telling because that's the first place God gets angry. He gets angry because Moses is unwilling to help. Moses, Moses' own family, his kindred, the Israelites have been oppressed for hundreds of years um, in Egypt. And God gets angry about that. I think that's a typical example. And we see it later on. God gets angry about his people when they worship the golden calf. Again, there's some, I think sometimes, you know, in Exodus 30, Two, we see some jealousy mixed in with his anger. But I would say as we look at anger, we do, we do have to say there are two emotions that are associated with God far more than any other, anger and love, interestingly. Mm. But consistently, God is well described as being um, abounding in steadfast love. His love is overwhelming. His love is overflowing. God is love. God is not anger. God's anger is limited. He is slow to anger and he is angry at his people when they are not Mm. loving or caring for other people. Um, And uh, like I say, when God is angry, what's behind it is his love. And I think for me, that's rather compelling. You know, it's interesting, too, because when I read the Exodus account, I see God's anger fomented because Moses didn't trust him. Who am I? Yeah. You know, what what will I say? Yeah. Send somebody else. And, and, and it's a, don't you understand who I am? Don't you trust me to send you into the breach? And, and you know, maybe that's a superficial observation, but it seems pretty consistent. Uh, when Ananias is sent to confront David or, or the Nathan, He's terrified. He doesn't go talk to the king. And uh, and when Ananias <laughs> is sent to Paul, go. He's a chosen instrument yeah, of yeah. mine. And it almost it feels yeah. like he's yelling at that point. You know, I told you to do this thing. Do you trust me? And then we're, what? We're back to the garden. We're really not trusting God at his word. So does that provoke his anger? Certainly. Certainly. You know, a lack of trust is a lack of faith. It's apparent that struggles with a child, maybe a young child or maybe an older child even, to we want to do something right for them. We want to protect them. We get angry at them when they do something dangerous. We're walking in traffic and they kind of steer towards the street, maybe a young child. And we get angry and it gets their attention. But there's a a lack of, I don't know if trust would be appropriate there. But I think that anytime a parent, or in this case, a God with his people, where there's a lack of trust, I think anger is a certainly appropriate response for God to his people when they don't trust him and they're not really putting their faith in him. When you were 
putting this together, and you have some great charts and diagrams, which, and I, I mean that sincerely, I'm finishing a two-volume set on uh, church history with some friends, and some of the charts are the most complicated, worthless charts I've ever seen in a book. So when I come to try to go, what's this chart trying to tell me um, that way? But I'm not angry about it. But you, on page 15 of your book, you have a, a great overview of hate, anger, jealousy, sorrow, joy, compassion, love. And then you compare it and contrast it to Aristotle, Darwin, Pluchik, and then Inside Out, which is, I guess, that the movie, right? The animation movie? Yeah, that's movie. the movie, the Pixar movie, yeah. My son-in-law yeah. loves that movie. And it's interesting how much emotion that thing can convey in such a powerful way. So, so give our listeners who have yet to buy your book, but they're going to before this is over, uh, give them a heads up on why spreading out this comparison and contrast with other thinkers and vis-a-vis the Bible. I was doing another podcast recently or interview and people were asking me, well, why did you pick these seven emotions and why not some of these other ones? Or what was one emotion that you wished you would have, or you could have picked if you'd had another chapter? And I said, well, I couldn't find any other emotion that is frequently associated with God. Fear and shame, surprise, aren't really associated with God in scripture. But then as I looked at my list, hate, anger, jealousy, I call those the three negatively perceived emotions. And then the three positively perceived emotions, joy, compassion, and love. And in the middle, I have this hinge of sorrow, which is maybe a little bit of both perhaps. I noticed that in a lot of the classic formulations, I'm going back to Aristotle and then Darwin, and then Pluchik is a 20th century psychologist who kind of developed this wheel that has cool Mm -hmm. colors. You could Google Pluchek's wheel and it'll show up. And then inside out this film, I was trying to have an array of what are kind of the big emotions. Brene Brown has got this fantastic book on Atlas of the Heart. And I think she's got like 90 of them and she kind of puts them into different categories. I ran across Brene Brown a little bit late um, in my process. I wish I had encountered her earlier. But there's a lot of research that have been done on emotions lately. I'm a Bible guy, though. I'm not going to be doing all of the reading on all these other, the neuroscience behind it and the psychological, you know, research on it. I'm looking at the Bible and what does the Bible talk about God? And so these are the seven that for me are associated with God and well, and actually God's people a lot. And so that to me seemed like a pretty good set. But it is interesting how they show up in all these other sources as well. Most of us know the passage where God's about to destroy the people of Israel. And God's obviously angry, and Moses is interceding. Take us to that scene as a Bible prophet. Explain God's emotion with Israel and with Moses. You know, the golden calf, classic story. I mean, really one of the worst sins uh, in human history, maybe after the eating of the fruit um, in Genesis 3. <laughs> the thing I, I, I like to describe is God has just delivered his people from hundreds of years of oppression. He takes them out to Mount Sinai. He gives them the, the Ten Commandments. The Israelites all go, everything that you've told us, we will do. The first couple of commandments have to do with don't worship other gods, you know, no other gods before me, you know, it's a kind of anti-idolatry. And then a couple, a couple chapters later, Moses is gone for a while and they build this golden calf. God is aware of it from Mount Sinai and he gets mad and he tells 
Moses, you got to turn around because I'm going to wipe these people out. My anger is going to consume them. Let, leave me alone. My wrath is going to burn hot. In my household, most of us, if we had a parrot when we were a kid or someone, parent had, had a lot of anger, what do you do in those situations is you leave and you avoid them, right? When people in my house, in my family were angry, we would just flee, right? Because it's like, I don't want to be around this angry person. Yep. Moses steps in and which is, I mean, to me is kind of one of the, mo- the bravest things of anybody has ever done in scripture. Because God says, look, I'm angry and I'm kind of, I'm in, I'm in destruction mode here. I'm going to wipe out my people. And Moses literally steps in the gap um, and he somehow convinces God to change his mind and not wipe out the people. And then Moses and God have this long interaction and God declares his name and his glory. And in Exodus 34, and this beautiful, amazing, and let's say emotive description of God and God's character, which gets repeated literally all over the Old Testament. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generation. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that description. God has just revealed his compassion and that he was willing because Moses stepped in to show mercy to people that really just kind of deserve to be judged. But the thing I love in this description is it's filled with emotional language and God Mm. describes himself emotionally. Does God do that for the benefit of finite men and women who can't comprehend God or is that who he is? Well, I think I would say yes. God (laughs) is always accommodating himself to humans. We are finite beings and we will never fully fathom the depths of God and God's character. You know, we're the vessels of clay that will not fully ever be able to say to the the clay maker, hey, why have you made me thus? We will not, you know, and again, if you want to be overwhelmed with how different we are from God, read the end of the book of Job, Job 38, 39, 40, where God just gives a barrage of questions to poor Job. Yes, God is always accommodating himself. I do not feel comfortable saying that this somehow, these accommodations somehow misrepresent God and God's character. This is still who God is. If like this description of God's character, this emotive description of God's character in Exodus 34 only showed up in Exodus 34, then I might be able to say, okay, maybe. But it shows up, it shows up literally all over the Old Testament, almost verbatim. And then versions Mm -hmm. of it show up dozens, maybe even hundreds of places, I would say, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus, yes. Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And there's a way that Jesus, in some ways, different from God the Father. But let's just be careful. When we talk about Jesus walking around in Galilee, in Samaria, and in Judah and Jerusalem, he was fully God, (laughs) okay? We get Mm -hmm. into trouble, and sometimes you read these scholars that say, well, this is Jesus' humanity we're seeing here. I'm like, whoa, 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 Jesus is always fully God and always fully a man, and we get into trouble. The church gets into trouble when we start differentiating that too much. So, yes, God's accommodating, but God is these descriptions, I think the Bible's emotional descriptions of God are very accurate. Again, and you know, forgive my differentiation, but in the 
Trinitarian Godhead, I can understand God the Father, the sovereign creator, sustainer of the universe, flesh, and I believe he was the eternally the Son of God, uh, unlike some, and and remains so. Um, he, he becomes incarnate. He was tired. He slept. He got angry, etc. Again, I don't want to draw too fine a distinction here. And then, of course, we have the Spirit who indwells the believer— and so, you know, I've argued for decades there's no salvation apart from a Trinitarian Godhead. Paul writes in, in Corinthians about the God who works, the Spirit who indwells, and the Lord who affects ministry, or a God who affects the Lord who works. So, again, not to put a fine point on it, but when Christ sees the disciples turn away because it gets hard, and he addresses the remaining 12 and says, you don't want to go away too, do you? You know, I have read that in my own emotional construct going, oh, Jesus was kind of depressed. Or was he simply teaching the 12 going, this is going to be hard. You want to leave too? And, you know, I don't know that we can be bulldog definitive on either side of it. But to me, that does show up. And tell me if I'm wrong, David. That shows me a, a bit of the humanity of Christ in a very raw way. Um, even, yeah. I mean, even Gethsemane. You know, sweating yeah. drops of blood. Yeah. Let this cup pass from me. So right. he can't, even though he is God-man, he felt deeply. Yes. Yes. And I think, again, we are never going to be able to fully fathom the mysteries of God and God's character. And even the, the, the distinction, we, you know, we could bring in some, some high-powered systematic theologians, many of whom are friends of mine and I respect, to help us make, you know, what, what does it mean as we think about this Trinitarian Godhead? I think the thing for me that was maybe a, a little surprising is all of these ways that I see God behaving in Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus and Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And yet we see something similar in Isaiah 14, 15, 16, where again, uh, some people think it's the it's Isaiah the prophet here, but a lot of the commentators I read make think this is God is speaking here, weeping over these cities that he is gonna have to judge. And then obviously we see it right there in Genesis 6, where right before the flood, it said God grieved. He was sorry. And you could translate Naham there in a variety of different ways, but that's an emotive word. Um, and that's the yeah. God of the Old Testament. This is, you know, and so the ways that we see Jesus experiencing anger um, and sorrow and frustration, and he talks about hate as well. You have to hate our family, and we could talk more about that too. But the ways that Jesus is speaking about his own emotions, and then the narrators are describing Jesus's emotions. We see all of these connected with the God of the Old Testament, with Yahweh. And so I think there's a continuity there and that I don't fully understand, <laughs> but between yeah. Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. And for me, that's beautiful. And that's actually quite compelling to me. And the Stoic God that sometimes we seem to encounter in some of the, the theologians we read, I just think that's not as compelling. I don't. I think that's not really the God that I encounter in the pages of Scripture. Well, I want to. I do want to ask specifically about the hate your brothers and sisters. But to the point you just bring up, um, we have a culture, and you've lived long enough. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit older than you. I would say the last. 20 years, there has been such an, be kind the way I say this, but such a 
focus and weight on counseling and therapy and introspection and what I call the I, me, my culture, how I feel. (laughs) And now we see uh, some unfortunate fruit of people being unsafe and feeling triggered. And it's all about emotion. And I was raised a little differently in that, yeah, the fact goes before the feeling and facts are immutable. Facts are what we can trust. My feelings will change. Today I'll be happy. Tomorrow I'll be sad. Today I'll be depressed. Tomorrow I'll be less depressed. One day I'll be thrilled. One day I'll be lonely. But the fact of who God is, his character, never changes. So that's a broad comment slash question. So help me on this, and I don't want to use the word continuum, but that's what comes to mind, of vis-a-vis, again, appreciating the value of what you're arguing, that God has emotion, and we understand that, but not sort of using that now as a royal excuse for how I feel about things, because God feels the same way. No, I think I think this is a great point. And we do just have to say, um, like almost anything, any part of who we are, our intellect can be redeemed, our um, rational thinking can be redeemed, or it can be corrupted and used, you know, for the sake of evil. Likewise, with our emotions, I talk a lot about the problems of emotions. They can seem uncontrollable, they can seem confusing, um, and, you know, what do we do with them? We don't understand them. They're irrational, and 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 I get that. And so there's 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 problems associated with emotions. The God of the Bible still is associated with emotions. And so I think they can be redeemed. Now, the reality is we do just feel emotions. And I think generally it's better to talk about them than not talking about it. And I think most counselors, um, psychiatrists, et cetera, would say talking about emotions is healthy. The thing I say is God talks about emotions. He models for us a healthy way to talk about emotions. I mean, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he uses emotional language when he talks to Peter, James, and John. He doesn't shy away from these. This is, he says, this is how I'm feeling. God in Exodus says, I am a jealous God. There is a downside to emotions, but there's so many upsides. Now, emotions can be manipulative. You can, as a speaker, mm-hmm. you can manipulate your audience emotionally. And that's why we need to have people around us that can hold us accountable and say, hey, when I got mad there, did that seem genuine or was that potentially manipulative? Or when I weep, and for me, <laughs> I, it's not uncommon for me to weep, to cry when I'm speaking because I, I, you know, the, the bar's kind of low on that one. And people like, oh yeah, Dave cried again. Yeah, when he, when he preached, it's, you know, same old, same old <laughs> for me. But um, it, only, it only gets but, worse you know, the older check. you get, brother. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, it just I don't have kids yet. So, yeah, okay. Something to look forward well, to. Well, worse or maybe better. Um, worse or better. Yeah. Because um, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed about it, but I'm less embarrassed about it. But again, the, the, the God of the Bible is a, is a weeping God. And the people of God in Scripture weep all over scripture, right? You know, Joseph, David, and then our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I tell people I follow a weeping savior. And sometimes what it means to be, mm-hmm. for me to be a follower of Jesus is that it means I'm going to weep. I'm going to weep with those who weep. Um, or I'm going to weep like Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 uh, when he, he pray, prayed and wept. So yes, there's a downside to emotions. And yes, we need to not manipulate people with our emotions. But I totally agree. God's character does not change. God's emotional character does not change. And yes, even though there's a downside, 
God models for us appropriate ways to talk about emotions and express emotions. I mean, maybe the most clear example is God is consistently slow to anger. And Paul tells me I'm called to be slow to anger as well. So be angry, but don't sin, right? There are calls in scripture to be able to control our emotions and display them in a healthy way. And that's something I struggle with, but that's something that scripture calls me to. You brought it up without me having to. So let's go to the, if you're going to follow me, you have to hate your mother and your brother and your sisters. I've spoken a couple times on hate. Um, I I always start out and say, I hate talking about hate. I really (laughs) hate it. I'm uncomfortable with it, but the Bible leaves me no choice. And I agree with Paul. In 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures inspired and profitable for teaching. So the Bible talks about hate. I have to talk about hate. When Jesus tells us we have to hate our family, we have to hate, you know, all these things that are kind of important to us, I think it's pretty clear that he's using hyperbolic language. And what he what he really means is we have to love these things less than him. Compared to me, it's gonna seem like you hate the things yes. of the world. Yes, yes. And I, I think that's great. Now, there are places in the Old Testament that I think hatred comes up that it's not, I don't think it means love less like it does um, when Jesus when Jesus uses that. But I'm pretty, it's pretty clear that when he says you have to hate these things, because it's parents. I mean, well, gosh, we're supposed to love our parents. We're supposed to honor our parents. That's the Ten Commandments and, you know, scripture elsewhere. It's pretty clear that that's, that's what's going on here. But, you know, Jesus is one of the most provocative people in scripture and one of the most provocative people in history. And it gets my attention and it hopefully it's going to cause me to make sure that my focus is on Jesus and him alone and everything else is going to pale by comparison. And that's what he's talking about. Okay. And in the same uh, word, then the same motion, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated. What do we do with this? Yeah, That's harder. That's harder. If you're not familiar with the text, that's from Malachi chapter one. And really, if this is something that you're interested in, I, I would encourage you to pull out your Bibles and um, and and reference it. Um, read the, the full context. In, in the book, I talk about how that, we have to read that story in light of all of scripture. Paul quotes that in, is it Romans 9, I think? Romans 9, um, 9, um, 9 but, 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Romans 9. And then you really almost need to read that story in the light of Genesis and the story of Jacob and Esau. But the way I understand that story is hate there is, it's clear that God loves Esau. Uh, and we go back to Genesis and we, we see that, how God looks out for, Isaac had two sons, um, Esau the older and Jacob the younger. The lineage, I guess, the, the royal blessing went Abraham, right. Isaac, and Jacob. But God still blessed Esau and Esau's descendants. But in Malachi 1, he's speaking and saying, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, have done things that are evil, and I am going to yeah. judge them. We have the idea of loyalty and disloyalty, and you talk earlier in your book about chesed, and which I argue is the most important word in the Old Testament, you yeah. know, loving kindness, steadfast love. God loves to be loyal to his covenant and to his people. Um, but at the same time, when the disloyal fall away, uh, uh, David in Psalm 101 says, I hate the ones who fall, uh, those who fall away. It, it shall not fasten its grip on me. And he's not saying he hates people. It, it, the word in Hebrew is disloyalty. 
And it's, it's again, yeah. it's juxtaposed against God's loyalty, God's chesed, over against man's yeah. disloyalty. Now, the, the conundrum I have with Jacob and Esau, Jacob is the supplanter. He's a schemer. Yeah. He's, you know, he's kind of a sniveling little brother, if you will. And technically, yeah. you mentioned birthright. Esau was the one in line, but Esau, Esau right. is no, you know, no plum either. I mean, he's a piece of work as well. Oh. So you've got this, this polarization, which, by the way, I think is the same as the prodigal in the New Testament, but that's just my crazy theory. But you have these two brothers juxtaposed. And so when he says, Jacob, I loved, I showed favor to a supplanter, yeah. Esau, yeah. who was disloyal to my covenant, I hate. Now, he's not saying I hate him in the human emotion vein. Right. He's saying, right. I gave my loyalty to a man who was disloyal to me, but when I chose, but the one who should have been loyal to me and was disloyal and tossed away the birthright, I give him away, if you will. So it's, it's not that I hate you like I'm going to beat you to pulp. It's like he was right. disloyal to me, and ergo talionic. If you're disloyal, I'm going to treat you in a disloyal fashion. Is that too far? Uh, no, no. To I think I think that I think you and I are, you and I are in a similar place. You and I are in a similar place. I think anytime we're looking at these texts, we have to be reading it in light of Scripture. Paul's got a little bit of a different take in Romans nine and Genesis. Genesis, the story of Genesis, of the story of Jacob and Esau, Genesis has some different points that we could be making there as well. The thing I'm going to be sitting on, though, is what does this mean in Malachi chapter 1? Okay. Um, and there I see judgment. Um, and it kind of goes back to you know connections to Genesis. But there I see judgment against the Edomites. Basically, and you can read else, elsewhere for the ways that they were treating his own people. The other thing we do need to say the Bible was written originally in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. And these words like hate, which are problematic, hate doesn't appear in the Bible in the original Greek and Hebrew, right? So we're using words that have a similar range, semantic range. There's always going to be a little bit of problem there. And I think the translators struggle with some of these, these meanings. And I just think some of these things, these texts are meant to be provocative. And I think we need to not... Yeah, that's why I brought yes. up jealousy when we began, David, because jealousy can be a neutral zone word. It can be a good word. I'm jealous of my wife uh, if a man talk, is talking to her. That's a good jealousy. Yep. I'm jealous Amen. if my children are being indoctrinated by some you know twisted, perverted concept. Yeah. And I'm making apologies right. about elbowing in and being angry and forceful and whatever right. it takes if it's over truth and love and kindness. So that's what I meant bringing it up at the very beginning was I think sometimes we're so fixated on hate's always bad, anger's always bad, when usage determines meaning, not just the biblical, not just a definition, you know, online. I think for me, all of these emotions but maybe even shockingly so, even the negative ones, um, I, I put negative in quotes, the sure. hatred, the anger, and the jealousy, even those are motivated by the love of God. And so it may not always be obvious, but if we look at the places where these emotions, these divine emotions appear, mm -hmm. it doesn't take a lot of work to see that what is motivating God's hate, his wrath, his anger, um, or his jealousy 
is love. And the same thing, the way that you are jealous um, of your wife, uh, you know, if someone's hitting on her or um, the, the, the example I talk about in my book is I'm jealous of her time. You know, when she's traveling or doing these other things, um, I can, I can get jealous of that because I, I could talk about it in a way that's unhealthy and maybe manipulative, or I could talk it about in a way that's more straightforward and honest and direct, and I would say more healthy. Mm. And that's what I try to do when I express my, my jealousy with my wife or any of us. Again, Paul does it um, to the Corinthians. I am jealous for you. I want you exclusively devoted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because mm-hmm. Paul said that because he loves them. In our last couple of minutes, you spend quite a bit of time on the love of God. So, so give us uh, Dr. Lamb's overview of the love of God and why this is an important emotion as we think about God being love, loving, loving, kind. Yeah, th- this was the hardest chapter because I felt like, oh, I'm going to come up with something new about love. I mean, how many books have we read? You know, and I, I start out with C.S. Lewis's kind of classic, uh, The Four Loves. The first thing we just have to say is love is the only emotion that God is. Again, 1 John 4, God is love. And all these other emotions somehow are tied up. You know, I was talking to my editors at IVP and it's like, if, is there one emotion to rule them all? Like if you're into Lord of the Rings or Tolkien, one emotion to rule them all, it's by far and away, it's love. But the thing that for me that I kind of pushed into a little bit is sometimes maybe people will talk about it as tough love. When Jesus interacted with what um, the, the, the man who is sometimes called the rich young ruler, he looked at him and loved him and told mm-hmm. him, you've got to sell everything. I know if someone were to say that to me, or if, if, you know, if something like that happened today, most people would say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. Very um, loving and yeah. or we would say, um, uh, he just needs to be willing to do that. <laughs> he doesn't actually yeah. have to do it. He just needs to be willing to do that. Well, that's Your not attitude. actually what Jesus said. Yeah, and attitude's important. Read how often Jesus loved people by speaking truth to them in a way that made them feel uncomfortable. And that's hard for me. But my call as a follower of Jesus, sometimes that's going to mean that I'm going to call people, other people, to follow Jesus in a way that's going to seem, it's not going to seem like love. But when Jesus told the rich young ruler, basically lay up treasures in heaven, Jesus was giving this man the best financial advice he could ever get, you know, better than when, you know, back in the days, um, Michael, you probably remember the E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen, right? Well, better than Ian Hutton, better than Morgan Stanley. I don't know if you have investments, where do you put them, who you talk to, who you listen to. Jesus' advice lay up treasures in heaven. Um, and in, in the world that we live in today, that's really hard because let's face it, yes. and I struggle with this too. We struggle with idolatry, particularly an idol of money, a money and possessions. And for what it means for Jesus to tell people to be loving, we got to focus on him and him alone, follow him. And that's the most loving thing he could do for his followers. The book is called The Emotions of God, and you can pick it up anywhere you purchase books online. Or if you happen to have a brick-and-mortar Christian bookstore in your neighborhood, it's published by Anniversary Press, David Lamb, the Alan A. McRae Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Faculty at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia, the great state of Pennsylvania. 
Thanks for your time, brother, and uh, thanks for your work and labors. And I, I trust the, the book will minister to lots of people and help them along their journey to figure out my emotions and God's emotions and how all this works out. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.